0: Please subscribe for Designers of Paradise at iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm speaking today with Matt Candelas, who is the man behind a fairly awesome collection of media, all bundled up in something called In Defense of Plants um it's we'll, we'll put a link here obviously later on um but you can go there for blogs you can go there for other podcasts he's got some amazing videos and he's coming out with a book very soon um i'm very very excited to you guys know i get excited easily but i'm excited once again to to be to be speaking with you today matt and for the listeners um you know the the the, the Design is a paradise itself, right? Is framed as a resource to help folks ground themselves within the larger regenerative space. But regenerative really, it's a very, very vast spectrum. It, it goes from the micro to the macro. It goes from the cellular to the, the almost the cosmic. Um, And it includes things like regeneration, obviously, soil practices. It also includes activities and technologies which previously might've been labeled as restoration, particularly ecosystem or ecological restoration. And it can even go as far as rewilding. And that's something we'll get into maybe later on this year. Um, Today's conversation, uh, having just delightfully, Met another total plant nerd. Um, we're gonna we're gonna just go with this, and we're gonna bounce it around, and um, hope that it interests you as much as it fascinates us. So, welcome, Matt.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Eric. It's a real honor to be here today.
0: <laughs> I'm I'm delighted, absolutely delighted. <laughs> maybe, maybe you could start off just by kind of laying out why you feel plants need defense.
1: <laughs> great question, and yeah, it's it's right in the name. It's something I I full heartedly believe in, and pretty much devoted most of my time, both uh, professionally and hobby wise, to. Uh, but really, I think it all is based in the fact that when I was looking for information on plants, when I was really starting to get into the world of plants, I'm at heart an ecologist, someone who really loves biology, evolution, the way organisms interact. And I always found information on animals, fish, birds, all that stuff really easy to get. Uh, it was, there's tons of it out there. There's a lot of great information, a lot of great research. But when I started getting into plants, I realized most of it, most of what I could find was really devoted to plants as, as tools or as food or as medicine, which is cool. I, you know, I do not deny that that is very important and uh, something that is you know, vital to humanity. But I also wanted to learn about them as organisms And uh, it was difficult to find that about plants, you know, no one was really talking about their ecology, the way they interacted with the world, what their origin stories were from an evolutionary standpoint. And so for me, in defense of plants is, is kind of saying, hey, all of this stuff is fine, but plants are also organisms fighting for survival each and every day. And I think if people really heard those stories in a compelling way, uh, they would start to look at plants the same way they look at like a bald eagle or a cheetah. And I think that's where in-defense of plants comes in is you know people wanna protect and, and understand things they love and what better way uh, than to inspire people with stories about the way plants make their living.
0: It's like pulling back the, the cover in some sense, isn't it? Of the, and, and, and being able to look within a universe that for most people it's background. It's like, yeah, it's funny because because yeah. periodically when I'm out hiking, um, you know, with friends in the countryside, and um, you know, always always kind of treading that line, you know, between sort of sharing the things that I'm seeing and not wanting to absolutely petrify them with boredom because I'm such a geek, um, and I'll I'll just I'll just stop and I'll go, okay, tell me what you see. Mm. We're walking down this green pathway what do you see and like i'm incapable of doing it without identifying pretty much everything i pass and and you know there's a, there's a, there's a, a track running in the background for me it's like oh yeah you know here's a, here's a hazelnut and it's in, in this family and this is the thing it can be used for and here's some tradition around it and here's a bit of mythology even that backs it up from places i other places i've known and lived in and most of my friends It's just undifferentiated green. Yeah. Right? And so to be able to kind of introduce people into this realm in a way that's accessible for them. I think that's, you know, having gone through, uh, having followed you for a couple of years now, but having recently gone through all of your different media uh, formats. So you do blogging and you do uh, YouTube videos and you have podcasts going, and then you've got the website itself um, and you're coming out with a book and I can't wait Mm -hmm. for it. That's gonna be released this February. We'll get back to that in a a little bit. what you do so well is you help people basically to open their eyes and do it in a way which is not kind of challenging them to feel like they couldn't understand. You know, you don't like hit them with a scientific hammer, as it were. It's it's a talent, it's a real talent. Oh,
1: thank I'm you, curious. I, I really appreciate
0: that. Sure, I'm, I'm curious, like, what was your trajectory like? Like, how did you go from, you know, being, well, when, when did you start being kind of aware of the vegetable world that would is this something that's been used as childhood or, or, or how did you kind of, how did you track along to get to where you're doing this now?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, It it really kind of came to me relatively late, uh, considering the breadth of where I've, you know, had experience in this life. Um, You know, I've dabbled a little bit. I I grew some vegetables as a kid, gave a shot at, you know, having some cacti in the house, uh, never really amounted to much. Um, I was really into aquarium fish, like really, really into aquarium fish for a long time. Uh, And I guess it kind of started there a little bit because instead of doing like the puke colored gravel with a little bubbly treasure chest, I was really into like mimicking the habitat that these fish would be in. And so I was always trying to figure out like, oh, where do they come from? What would their... River or lake system look like, and and that inevitably introduced me to a lot of different aquatic plants, which is interesting. That's a it's a cool introduction to get to the botanical world, but it didn't really stick. I mean, they were just decorations, sort of the backdrop, like you you said about sort of just hiking and not really noticing the plants that are just kind of there. Uh, I think the real real introduction for me, um, you know, I was in zoology, didn't like that trajectory, so I transferred over to ecology and started thinking a lot more in undergrad about sort of the way organisms interact and and form ecosystems and how, you know, little perturbations can send them in one direction or the other. And around that time, I got a a job working in a quarry of all places, and I was doing permitting and just making sure they were keeping to, you know, EPA codes and standards and stuff. But part of the job was doing restoration of abandoned mine sites, and one of them involved a uh, sand and gravel pit that offered a really unique opportunity to bring back a unique ecosystem type, which is a warm season grass meadow, not covered in trees, like most of New York was where I grew up. And that really kind of was my, my, my true introduction to the world of plants because the project was centered on um, re- restoration of a butterfly. And that butterfly is the carner blue, it's federally listed, and it needs uh, perennial blue lupin, lupinus perennis to survive. Its, it's offspring can eat nothing else and that was really where it started for me was this realization that oh what's you know if i care about these animals all the really you know quote unquote charismatic stuff they have to eat something and whether it's a predator or an herbivore all of that boils down to plants at some point so that was really my first introduction to the fact that like plants are super super important outside of like our industrialized world and what we need to eat and do but just this realization that there's this whole world I never really gave much attention to and that all the stuff I cared about relied on it. And then the more I just started reading about plants and how they interact with the world, the more um, I got interested in the plant side of things and less interested in sort of the vertebrate world. And it just kind of became a snowball effect where every new like paper I read or book I picked up was just this world of discovery. And you kind of mentioned this idea of it being so foreign to us. It's, I love science fiction. I say this in my, my book, it's, it's a way for me to kind of escape and think about alien forms of life. But here on this planet, plants are doing stuff so differently than most other walks of life. And it's, it's almost like a way to explore an alien world, but for real.
0: Do you bore your friends? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think I used to, I, I've definitely got a much, uh, better friend group. I guess nowadays I, I've kind of weeded out, so to speak, the ones that, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm a pretty obsessive type. And so, yeah, I, I mirror a lot of your sentiments about hiking with people, but nowadays I just hike with people that do want to walk at a snail's pace and look at every little thing and think about it. So, uh, sometimes I I can definitely see it when friends come over and see my, my house plants or our garden and, uh, you know, they'll start asking, I'm like, do you really want to do this? Cause I'll talk and the, their eyes glaze over. So sometimes I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah. the kind of oversharing. It's endemic. Um, so I don't know if you've totally answered the question, but I probably didn't phrase it well. Um, so when I look at the, at the kind of the, the name on the box, right. In defense of plants, mm-hmm. is that in defense of caring about them? and obsessing about them or is it because plants need defense or is it something i'm missing
1: uh it's both i mean just a sense of wonder i i would love for people to look at my work listen to my work read my work and see plants even for a second how i see them but the other side of it is really a defense of they need the attention um you know it, we're we're in a mass extinction event right now that we are causing and you know habitat destruction is the leading cause of that but when you think about habitat destruction it just kind of ends there it you know a lot of the conversations don't go beyond that because they're so worried about the panda or the pangolin or the tiger uh, but what everyone fails to say most of the time is that plants are that habitat and despite you know most plants being far more endangered than most animals by a long shot you know, plants only receive about 5% in the United States, at least 5% of conservation dollars. And if we could just shift that to even be 50-50, I think we could save a lot more in the process. And so, you know, not only are plants important just intrinsically as species, as part of the biodiversity complex, caring about them means setting the stage for a lot of really important advancements in conservation across the board. So it's, it's multifaceted for me, thinking of why plants need defense. You know, it's just... Trying to celebrate them in all aspects of their amazing, um, cool. amazeness, amazingness.
0: Yeah, maybe, amazing, maybe amazingness. <laughs>
1: um,
0: yeah, I, I, I resonate with that. Let's see if we can tie this kind of specificity taken from the word species, um, and you know the the focus in particular. Uh, elements or particular beings in in that sense, in their assembly into systems and position it in such a way that folks who are interested in regeneration in general, maybe will take an even deeper interest in how the the vegetable, vegetative world around them um, is assembled and functions. Do you wanna take a crack at that?
1: Yeah. I, I, if I'm understanding, you're asking sort of like, how does it all come together to support communities? And what is that? I mean, biological communities and what does that mean for regeneration? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting point to ask because that's what I do professionally right now. My my research has all been focused on sort of plant community assembly and, and why some plants grow here and why they're abundant here, but not other places. And so you think about sort of the filters on the landscape that allow plants to exist, but then couching that in the greater picture, I don't think there's any more um, meaningful way to do regenerative anything for the planet, for ecosystems, than to start with indigenous plant communities, plants communities where they evolved, where these species have co-evolutionary histories with all of the other organisms that share the the ecosystem with them and rely on them really. And so, um, you know, the way plants come together, you can, kind of picture that is sort of like a filtering system there's a regional species pool a a group of species that could possibly exist they're there in location in some form or another and then where they end up and how they end up interacting depends on things like soil moisture and temperature all of these ways you can measure what we call the niche of an organism that hyper volume this nebulous idea of what an organism needs to survive and reproduce and and all that fun stuff. And, and that's a really interesting thing to think about because if we can kind of understand how plant communities come together, we can understand how changes in the ecosystem can affect them. And then, you know, when you start to realize, like I did, for instance, a lupin supports this butterfly. This butterfly's larva also attracts ants to help uh, protect it. It does that by secreting these little uh, juices out of its backside. And, and you start to realize that like, yeah, plants really are sort of that pin that holds it all together. But plants are also just these organisms doing their own thing too. They're competing with each other. They're amazingly, they're like poisoning each other some a lot of the times. They're shading each other out. It's it's a it's a pretty brutal world out there. And it's really fun to think about, you know, walking into a forest and where most people see like harmony and, and all of this peacefulness. It's just this big struggle of evolutionary arms races to survive. And um, you know, again, thinking about regeneration, there's nothing better you can do than to plant native plant communities and the native part of that is really important i get that a lot uh, a lot of questions from people that aren't necessarily into the native plant movement is like why does this matter well if you think about most insects most of the organisms that then go on to feed all of the other stuff we love like birds they have an evolutionary history with these plants and oftentimes they're very specific like the the carner blue butterfly they can't eat anything else but a few maybe even a single species of plants and so by working with plants that they evolved with you know you're restoring the foundation of an ecology you're restoring biodiversity and that to me is the most important thing we can do because whether we realize it or not biodiversity matters we need it to survive everything needs it to survive and as long as we kind of move towards fostering that, that's like the most regenerative thing we can do because we're really, really good at removing biodiversity. And I think that's a trend that desperately needs to be reversed.
0: I think that's a good point. Um, He says in a minimalist kind of session uh, manner. Um, there's 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 another aspect too, I think, to that, which is pretty critical for the regenerative movement as it as it builds and proliferates um, at kind of a a more macro level, Um, which is the only way we're going to get to where we need to go, which is recovery of ecosystem function, um, is for people to start actually falling in love with their planet. And you can't fall in love with something as big as a planet. I mean, maybe a few people can, but you can fall in love with where you live. Right. And yes. and the root to that is really learning it. Right. It's it's really yeah. starting to, to recognize the other life forms, which share that space with you and appreciating them. Um, so, I mean, I, again, you know, I, I, I've got no perspective on this because I'm a plant nerd, too. But <laughs> like, were I to come into this without any kind of alignment, maybe. I mean, maybe maybe listeners could let me know. But uh, maybe that would be a persuasive op- uh, argument, right? Um, we do need to know what we're doing. We do need to know where we are. It helps us figure out who we are. There is another system of, of thinking um, which is kind of anchored by the term bioregionalism, um, which mm. is again, it's like, you know, what is your watershed? What is what is the area that makes sense in terms of the geography and the energy flows and the species flows, et cetera, where you are parked. And again, the bioregional awareness starts from learning about the lives that are not you, right?
1: indeed yeah
0: at at that point i wouldn't separate plants from animals the same way i I could never really separate eating plants from eating animals (laughs) Um, earlier in my life (laughs) to me they're all life forms Um, sure and i used to express it uh by telling people look you know these this is a lot more going on here than wallpaper right this isn't just to kind of like decorate your passing uh, this There's a this, this, this functionality here that's absolutely critical to start to appreciate, even if the appreciation only starts with an open. Tell us about your book.
1: Yeah, I think that is really what you just outlined, sort of this inspiration, getting people to fall in love. That's that's what this book is all about. It's, it's not only sort of a, a, in part a personal journey, why I fell in love with plants and why I think you should too, but it is it offers, I think the reader, many opportunities to find something that they can fall in love with or find interesting. I don't expect everyone to come out to be as ex- like completely obsessed with plants as I am. That's unrealistic. And I would never put that kind of pressure on people. But like I said, if you can even walk away feeling for a moment the way I feel about plants, I, I think I've done my job. And, and I forget the quote. I'm not going to even try to, I'm just going to paraphrase it because I'm going to butcher it. But most of the issues we're facing ecologically are rooted in Sort of like cultural spiritual issues, I guess, if you could. We just have values that don't align well with uh, sort of what's going on in the natural world because we've spent so much time away from it. We we're very much shielded from it in our houses and our day to day lives. And most people, you know, just like I don't think about the inner workings of quarks and gluons and the molecules that make up my food or the car I'm driving. Most people don't have to think about ecology to get through their day. And that's, you know, that is what it is. It's it's what society has built us. And you can't look at that and just fight it constantly. You have to work around it. And to me, it it comes down to sort of inspiring people. And that, you know, going back to what you said about drowning people in the science of it, I, I realized early on that. The way I think about science in my professional life or the stuff I like to read is not necessarily going to land well or really inspire much out of most people that don't think about this. And so I always aim, especially with the book, to tell really inspirational stories, tell people why plants are doing things so differently, why they're forced to just because they're sessile, they don't have a central processing unit like a brain or a nervous system. And it's made them do things that we can empathize with like feed themselves fight for survival reproduce but they're doing it in so many different ways and if you can just sort of shine a light on those unknowns those things that you don't even realize is out there whether it's from the macro to the micro scale i think there's a lot of opportunities for people to get inspired and and i think more than the doom and gloom more than the lecturing the sort of like uh i guess uh highfalutin sort of like, this is why you need to care. Uh, I think more just trying to inspire people is a much better way because you're not going to be dragging anyone kicking and screaming and you're a lot less likely to kind of build that antagonism. Like, Oh, you think you're better than me? It's like, no, I just think this is cool. And here's why you should think it's, you know, here's maybe a reason why you would be interested in this as well. And so I just with the book, try to aim to tell different stories about the way plants are are making their living. And that's kind of how, you know, the first two chapters are kind of personal discussions personal discovery and, and adventure and my, my sort of dive into the plant world, but the rest of the book is really just taking it sort of at disp- different aspects, how plants get around the landscape, how they reproduce, how they fight for survival, and then sort of ending it on that, and they need our help. And I hope, you know, with the inspiration that they gained through most of the book, that final chapter It can be a little doom and gloom, but it's a it's a recipe for moving forward. And that's, um, you know, I think that's important, too. You have to not only inspire, but then give people action. I I, you know, the doom and gloom just ending there. People walk away depressed. If you think it's hopeless, if you think there's nothing we can do, what motivation is there to inspire you to do anything about it? And so the big point I try to make at the end of the book is is things seem really bad. and, And in many ways they are. But there's so much nature left to be saved. And so much we can do at any stage, whether you're living in the city or out on a massive acreage farm or something like that, we all have a stake in this, we can all get our hands dirty and thinking about it, like you said, sort of as being like a hometown hero hometown fan. You know, think Global act local. It's a cliche, but it's so true. There's nothing any of us can do about the global state of things. We can't love an entire planet. We can't fix an entire planet by ourselves. What we can do is make an impact locally in our own neighborhoods. And I think by learning plants by being excited by plants, you get a sense for what's going on in your your neighborhood, in your backyard, in your you know little alleyway between your apartment stuff is going on there. Nature's doing stuff there and you can find a lot of inspiration there and you can find a lot of ways to, to help it out. And, and that's really exciting to me. And, and I think that can be really exciting to other people because it's, you know, we're not totally screwed. <laughs> we're definitely changing things, but there's so many ways we can we can reverse that. And that's really what I want people to walk away with, with this book.
0: So the book is, is the same title, right? In Defense of Plants?
1: yeah in defense of plants and exploration into the wonder of plants um it's it's, coming out this month correct february 23rd it was originally slated for the 16th but uh you know covid doing what it did to shipping and handling um you know there's a little bit of a week delay but yeah end of the month it'll be out and people can get their hands on it and uh actually the 16th the audiobook and ebook version will be available so if you want audio or digital um you'll be able to get that earlier
0: Fantastic. And can they, can they order it through your, um, your website, your shop?
1: Yes. Uh, the 23rd, I'll have that up uh, ready to go. So they can get it directly through me, but you know, you can go through a lot of other uh, avenues as well.
0: Yeah. But you can also wait and send the money directly to you.
1: Correct. Yes. It definitely helps me to go directly through the website.
0: <laughs> That's my recommendation. <laughs> and by the I way, uh, that. By, by the way, I've, I've never, ever, you uh, you know promoted anybody's merch uh and i don't know if i'll do it again oh. but when i was looking through your shop just to prepare for this call i was so impressed with the graphics i want all the t-shirts oh thanks <laughs> I, want
1: all the t-shirts I know i them. feel the They're same really way awesome <laughs> yeah yeah I, I i i'm glad that lands well um i love them i wish i could have you know <laughs> I, I, I don't have the budget to be dumping it all into my clothing. So I, I have a handful of things out of my own shop, but yeah, I'm, I'm really, really excited. And, you know, I don't want to put things out that I wouldn't personally put on my own body. So I'm glad, I'm glad they resonate.
0: Yeah. yeah brilliant. Brilliant. Brilliant.
1: And, um, and a portion of the pur- purchases do go to charities like the nature conservancy um, and uh, the rainforest trust and the biodiversity heritage library. So giving back to. We're going to take a break now, so stay tuned. We'll
0: be right back. Designers of Paradise is made possible in part by Mind & Media. Over the last quarter century, the writers, producers, storytellers, and media specialists at Mind & Media have spearheaded a multitude of engaging and complex communication campaigns. Mind & Media is a proud supporter of the work being done by the wonderful and passionate people of Rasa, who are engaged in the creation of a regenerative future for generations to come? Find out more about Minded Media at mindedmedia.com. That's M-I-N-D-A-N-D-M-E-D-I-A acom And now, back to Designers of Paradise and host Eric Van Leen. Welcome back to Designers of Paradise, where I am speaking today with Matt Candelas. From in defense of plants, how would you present the case for rebuilding and caring for um, natural systems and their and their and their plant components, particularly to say a, a land manager of a, a farmer who is moving towards a fully regenerative practice? uh why should she care about more than um you know a closed loop between her dairy herd and the broccoli field for instance
1: um i mean there's a lot of reasons she should care and really i think the most selfish and i'm not saying that in a negative context but really you know protect yourself first <laughs> um is is sustainability and and long to, you know just being on the on the scene for as long as possible And, you know, we can manage these systems to death. We can get as much of the complexity and the biodiversity out of it. But any system that is inherently uh, minimalist is bound to be way more vulnerable. You know, if you only have three pylons holding up a structure, you knock one of those out and that structure is probably doomed. But if you have hundreds of pylons, thousands, unmeasurable amounts of pylons holding up a structure it's a much more stable thing in the long run. And so, you know, just from a selfish standpoint of being around for as long as possible and and maximizing your long-term gains off of this instead of immediate uh, gratification, as we're so prone to, you know, that's that's really number one. If you If you care about yourself and your enterprise and you want to stick around, you have to care about it because especially if you're living off the landscape, the more you can repair what's been damaged, what's been lost and bring some of that back, you're better off. I mean, a diversity of grasses is a much better food to feed your cattle than silage, and it's going to have a much better nutrient profile. Uh, you know, picking the right grasses are going to support microbial communities. They're going to, you know, make your soil a much better ecosystem in the long run. You're going to have insects around the landscape that are going to both pollinate your plants and, and take care of any predators that or herbivores that might get out of control in a hyper-managed system where there aren't checks and balances. So, you know, just thinking about it from the enterprise of farming, she's got a lot of motivation there, but at the end of it too, you know, we need clean air, we need clean water, we need food. And, and all of this is rooted in ecology, all of this stuff. It's, it's kind of like we can't have our cake and eat it too. You know, we can't, manage all of this stuff out and make it super easy and simplified and expect it to last very long. And so, you know, this is, it's hard to get past, I think, because there's, it's a very complex topic and there's no smoking gun to say like, this is why you should care, but there's, you know, even if it's selfishness you can indulge yourself uh in knowing that you'll be around a lot longer and at least have a lot more of a fighting chance of weathering the oncoming and never uh ever increasing storm that is is climate change you know this it, we're changing so fast and biodiversity is such a a way to buffer ourselves against this this uncertain future we have
0: isn't it strange though that that um i mean i'm 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 also seeing biodiversity concern um and to a slightly lesser extent initiatives right um Mm -hmm. pretty much coming up to the same point as the carbon the carbon conversations and and that's good Um, but isn't it strange that the word that we need to use is so dry
1: You know, I, it, I guess, it's not know. really, it,
0: it's like, it's the kind of thing is like, if you care about it, you really care about it and you're really happy someone else is talking about it. But if you don't, it's sort of like, yeah, okay. Um, I guess, what's for, di- <laughs> what's for dinner, you know?
1: Right, right, yeah. And and I mean, you really, it's an important thing, and I'm glad you brought that up. You You really got to know your audience and you really got to think about who you're trying to aim for. I mean, you and I can talk biodiversity all day and get really excited about it, but that's just us who are already sold on the idea that it is important and understand it. But you you really have to think of what's motivating people to go outside and do what they do every day, and what might be motivating them to do things that you find uh, antagonistic to nature or biodiversity. And it's tough to come up with language because as soon as you coin a new term and and sort of get it into the lexicon of certain groups or you know or tribes, I guess, because we are a tribal species in so many ways. Um, you really start to set this wedge between us and them. And it's like, okay, well, you're the people that really like ecology. You're the people that really like biodiversity and people get an image in their head. So, you know, I'm, I'm also hesitant a lot of times with jargon just because I think it, it sets it it already gives a preconceived notion when you're talking to different groups of, okay, this is who this person is. And if people want to tune you out, it gives them a really good opportunity to say like, ah, no, I know where this is going. And it's tough. I, I, I would love to hear different ways of of saying biodiversity that would be more appealing to others, uh, you know, outside of people like us that think about it. But, you know, this is where the sort of experiment and enjoyment and challenge of writing and communicating this stuff to people comes in for me is just kind of getting into the marketing side of it, what's in people's heads and what resonates, and trying to figure out different ways to present these ideas that maybe would land better with people that don't think and talk just like I do.
0: You know, it strikes me that this is one of those situations where we have created a label to try to encapsulate a set of concepts and make it easier to pass it along, um, you know, by condensing it in some way. And without really being aware of the slippage, the label is now running the show, right? And and I, th- I see that all the time with language. So biodiversity, yes, that encapsulates a whole bunch of stuff. A lot of people have talked about and agreed on, and stuck that name on it. And it's like, yes, when I see biodiversity, I know what it means. You know what it means. They know what it means. But sometimes there's no substitute for saying things the long way. Right. 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 So this is this is this is about you know this 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 uh, you know explosion of of different uh, ways of living, of of different uh, survival strategies among different kinds of organism that have competition going on and they've got cooperation going on and they have their time on the planet and then they pass and something else fills the niche and it's you know it's it's this grand scale kind of kind of. Um, Almost, you know, cinematic, of uh, hmm. your view of, of of the abundance of life, but that takes the, so that's already taken me a minute and a half to say, right? <laughs> or I could have said biodiversity.
1: <laughs> right, it's it's tough, yeah, and. <sighs> You know you see it in science all the time you're like oh god there's so much jargon here you're like well you need to be precise and how do we do that sometimes it's three sentences to make sure you're drilling into the exact point you want to make sometimes it's a new word that you have to invent mm. but i think the conversations as long as you try to inspire people and try to think again about where they're coming from put yourself in their shoes Uh, it's uncomfortable for a lot of people. People don't want to think outside of their little comfort zone. Um, You know, this is coming back again to the inspiration. As long as you can make it sort of inspiring by the end of it, whatever you're trying to say, however long it takes you to say it, I think you're better off uh, than you are with trying to lecture people, demean them, tell them why they're wrong all the time. I mean, it's like, remember when you were a kid and your parents said, don't do something kind of wanted to do it a little bit more, you know, and <laughs> unfortunately our society yeah. is so addicted to outrage and, and the exactly. more, you know, having the moral high ground that we're, we're, we're too ready to bludgeon people with ideas instead of saying, here's a little taste. If you want more, I'm here, but I'm not going to force you into this. If you care, you care. If not, I've got to think of a different way. Maybe tomorrow's sentence will get you.
0: Yeah, yeah. absolutely sometimes i think that we're coming back down to a species level right so so when 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 things get too muddled for me um particularly around looking (laughs) at politics and policy and psychology of the you know the various drivers that seem to be creating the dystopia we're heading we're heading into um, (laughs) i try to take things back as far as i can understand them on a pure species level and one of the mm. things that I think human beings are really, really super good at, and that's not to say other creatures aren't, because for 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 most of the rest of existence, we haven't a clue what it's about, because we haven't even—I mean, we're just right. beginning now to ask, as as if you know, uh, maybe we could figure out how an elephant thinks, and if we did right. that, we might be able to get a sense of what that creature is about right? But until very, very recently, it's just been totally from our perspective. So we really, we really can't answer these kinds of questions. But one of the things that it does seem to me human beings are particularly good at is obsessive behavior. We are (laughs) super good at focusing on these things that we think um, probably hooked into some sense of survival, you know, you get it right, and then you just keep doing it. Um, Sure. How do we shift people's tendency for obsessive obsession into
1: defending plants
0: because that's the movement we need
1: yeah i mean to me it's about getting them to relate to them in some way you know in, in so many ways an unthinking unfeeling un you know something that doesn't get up and move around or can't make a noise you know it's hard to relate to i get that you know you look at a tree you're like we don't have anything in common here but Drilling into sort of the basic biology, even if you start with just having to make a living, yeah, trees make their own food. They take energy from a star, our nearest star, and turn that into energy that they can then use themselves. But once they make that energy, they have to consume it. And then you think about, oh, okay, well, plants digest and eat carbohydrates and many of the same mechanisms that animals do. And once you start to realize like, oh, their life, we kind of all came from a similar starting point. We've diverged a bunch, but there's a lot there. And then thinking again, that's why, you know, again, couching this book, in different ways plants make their living, you realize they're doing things that we every organism has to do. It's just unique ways of inventing that. And so to kind of break through the obsessiveness and get, or at least get people interested, it's telling those stories, those inspirational stories. And, and most of the, the book I talk about, I'm not going to add the doom and gloom to those stories. I'm going to say, here's an orchid that smells like a female wasp. And when a male wasp emerges, all sex crazed and doesn't know up from down and just wants to get the job done, It doesn't know if it's trying to mate with a flower or an actual female bee. And the plants have tapped into that through an evolutionary stance and and used it to their advantage so that they can have sex. So they're co-opting the sex lives of another organism so that they can have sex. And when you think about those things, you go, holy cow, that's wild. Are other plants doing this? And then you realize there's this whole spectrum of other plants that have co-opted insect sex lives to their own benefit. And that's where just relating different unique ways plants are doing things we can all empathize with, trying to reproduce, trying to get food, trying to, you know, get the space we need to survive. That's when you start to realize, oh, they're dynamic. These are organisms that are doing things in amazing ways. They're just doing things at different timescales or, you know, unbeknownst to us that we can't see or smell oftentimes. And And those those realizations, I think, are the inspiration. Those are what get people to go, oh, that's cool. And when one when you can get people to say that's cool, I wonder X, Y, Z, you've already set the stage for them to maybe go a little bit further with it, whether that's pick up a different book, keep reading the same book, or, you know, just jump on Wikipedia and say, like, oh, what's this plant doing in my backyard? I never really thought about oaks in this way before and I, I at least know what an oak is oh crap there's like nine oaks in my neighborhood what, why are they different you know there's so many different ways you can get people to start thinking about that it's just about to me finding ways to inspire them to want to learn more
0: I totally agree speaking of books yes have you got a short stack that you found inspiration in no
1: oh, yeah it's bigger than a short stack. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, there's a, a lot of books that have kind of changed the way I look at the world. Um, one of the biggest ones in my life, you know, say what you will about him nowadays. I, I don't necessarily agree where he's gone as a, as a person, as a scientist, but Richard Dawkins, The Selfish Gene, completely changed the way I look at the world. And it made it make sense to me. You know, people talk about life being meaningless or trying to find meaning in life. The selfish gene to me is the core of meaning. It's the only real biological meaning we can think of, like why we're putzing away and eating food and struggling just to get to a point where, you know, we're all going to be in the same spot at the end of it. But it's it really put things into perspective for me. Another one was uh, A Year in the Maine Woods by Bernd Heinrich, and uh, he's an amazing I guess, evolutionary, behavioral ecologist. A lot of his work is on ravens, but he's someone that just, he's a naturalist at heart. And his book, A Year in the Maine Woods is all about him moving up to his cabin in Maine and living there for a year and just observing. And as a young person that was really nerding out about biology and didn't really know what was out there, books like that, where you can just be like, oh, here's an adult that's doing this, uh, maybe I'm not alone. Maybe I'm not this huge geek that's hopelessly <laughs> addicted to something no one else is. You go, oh, that's amazing, and then just again, this—it's inspirational. His book—he's a scientist, but his book wasn't difficult. It wasn't uh, highfalutin. It didn't use big words to impress people and show how smart of a scientist he is. It's—it's it's relatable, and it's all couched in just this wonder of nature and exploration and trying to understand why these organisms are here and not over there and how they're working together or against each other in a lot of ways. And, and that sort of stuff just really got me hyped because it meant every time I went outside, I could think about these things and, and want to learn more about these things. So, yeah, those are really sort of the two big inspirations book wise for me.
0: I do remember reading selfish gene. I'm not sure if I read a year in the Maine woods or not. It sounds familiar. And I did have a few I years. I highly
1: recommend it if you haven't.
0: Yeah, I had a few years in the main woods myself. So it'd be interesting to read and see see how many things it brings yeah. it back to me. Um, my takeaway from selfish gene, again, you know, I read it eons ago, um, was that basically human beings are just a form that genes have have come up with to perpetuate themselves.
1: Yeah. All organisms are, it's, it's genes are the <laughs> core of life. Yeah. They, they are like, the blueprint and it's like Lynn, genes Mar-Gulis. take
0: care of their, <laughs> you, know, you know, Lynn Margulis, right. The, the, the woman who, who uh, the scientist who first kind of came up with a, a very, very expansive and intensive uh, research into my, the microbial kingdom that, that runs the world. Um, right. She she basically said something very similar some some time ago. She said that uh, you know we're all
1: in the we're all just here in in the service of microbes. <laughs> yeah, but even you know below that level, the microbes are in the service of the DNA too. So yeah, it's just exactly. about getting copies as many copies of what you are, your DNA, into another vessel to continue the the self replication, so to speak. And there's an amazing you know all of the species on our planet are the result of that really that goal
0: <laughs> yeah loads of loads of strategies for for, for how to do that
1: yeah. um, which is why i think you know like convergent evolution is so amazing you look at uh, you know sea slugs that look like fish because they live in an aquatic system where they have to swim all the time it's just amazing that you know uh, a, a carnivorous plant, the Venus flytrap, or a, a pitcher plant, all of those genes that are, they're using, they've co-opted to use to capture and digest insects, were just genes that were originally there for defense against things like fungi. They've just, you know, through an evolutionary sense, figured out how to retool them to get nutrients from a, an environment that doesn't give it to them in the soil. It's, it's incredible.
0: It is, it is really fantastic,
1: in the full sense
0: of the sense of fantastic um we're coming up on the on the hour pretty soon is are there some things that you'd like to make sure we leave listeners with uh with this conversation maybe the stuff we haven't got I mean, to yet
1: yeah i think you know i get a lot of people that contact me and say like where do i begin and that to me is exciting because that tells me someone listened or read something i did that wasn't necessarily into plants and wants to get into them and that's such a good question and it can be really daunting because plants are everywhere i mean You can't avoid them, which is cool. Um, But for someone that doesn't know them, it can be daunting. And that's, you know, this idea of like the plant, the green backdrop, like you said, of just the wallpaper of life. You just kind of tune it out if you're not aware of it. And I, I think what people need to know is that it all starts with a name. Learn. The plants around you and this is coming back to what you said about being sort of a hometown fan you now that I'm interested in plants, you can plot me anywhere in the world and I will find something interesting there just because I'll go oh, okay what's that grass Oh, okay what's that little flower over there. Oh, that's kind of cool. It, it, it grounds you, it literally and figuratively roots you into a place. And so the best way to start and, and what I want people to know is just get a field guide. It can be as technical or as easy as you want it to, even if it's just a guide to common garden plants, there's going to be something interesting in there. But the most important thing is that you able to associate the view of a plant with a name of a plant. And then once you have a name, it's just like, I'm Matt. Okay, I'm Matt Candace. Let's talk about who he is. It's the same thing with a plant. Um, you know, Docus carota, wild carrot. Oh, it's a wild carrot. What does that mean? Oh, it's the progenitor of the carrots that we buy at the grocery store, or grow in our own gardens. Now you have a whole new world opened up to you just because you knew the name of something and now you can search more about it. And, and the best way to do that is just to get an ID guide, something that helps you put a name to the image in your head or what you're looking at outdoors. That's, that's where you got to start
0: so start where you're standing
1: yeah yeah exactly again the the world's problems are overwhelming and there's many arguments to be made that we we're not we're not evolved or situated or capable of of really digesting and really making sense of the complex and and craziness of the world we're not a global species we're barely you know in an evolutionary sense off of the uh, african savannah and so you know start at home start as minimalist as you can Tune it all out for a little bit. At the very least, it'll be healthy for your you know, well-being of just getting, uh, getting away from the computer, getting away from the 24-hour news cycle and just start learning things in your in your yard, in your neighborhood. And, and you'll be surprised how quickly that can blossom into complete and full-blown obsession. But even if it doesn't, at least you have a newfound appreciation for things. And it will make you happier. Yes, exactly. That's the other part of this is like, there's whether you call it forest bathing or you call it hiking going outside and being in nature is good for you. <laughs> and there's it's, increasing amounts of evidence for that.
0: Absolutely.
1: So uh, listeners, we will have the link to
0: um, Matt's website and uh, maybe a direct link also to his book um, below this when we, when we publish. And um, I want to really thank you for a very enjoyable hour, Matt.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. It was an honor to be here. It was a a great conversation. I really appreciate having it with you.
0: I hope we have another in the near future.
1: Me too. Yeah. Anytime. Cool. Okay. Take care. And thanks again. Yeah, you too. Hang in there and stay healthy.
0: Yeah, you too. Bye-bye now. Thank you for listening to Designers of Paradise. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Join me next week as we bring you another eye-opening interview with the people who are revolutionizing the way we produce our food. Indeed, the people on the front lines of Designing Paradise. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. To learn more, go to www.rasa.ag. That's www.rasa.ag. If you have any ideas you'd like to suggest, such as folks we should be talking to or a specific topic we should cover, hit me up with your ideas on Twitter at Greenheart. That's G-R-E-E-N underscore H-E-A-R-T, Greenheart. We'll see you next week.